Welcome to episode 156 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week my guest is Tammy Moses. Tammy grew up in a home where her parents were hoarders. She joined the military to escape that life. She wanted to get away from her hometown and start fresh, and she saw the Navy as her opportunity to make that happen. Because of her rush to leave, she ended up joining Undesignated, and through the support of her leadership and a lot of hard work, was able to become rated as a personnelist. Today, she runs her own business to help others as they overcome challenges with organizing. It's another great interview, so let's get started with this week's interview. You're listening to Season 3 of the Women of the Military Podcast. Here you will find the real stories of female service members. I'm Amanda Huffman. I am an Air Force veteran, military spouse, and mom. I created Women of the Military Podcast in 2019 as a place to share the stories of female service members past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Welcome to the show, Tammy. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm happy to connect and chat with you here. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? Well, I was thinking this morning, I was like, why, why did I do that? <laughs> and honestly, I really wanted a change. And I really wanted to get out of the town where I grew up. And I really wanted to see the world, if you will. And I happened to talk with a recruiter who came to the high school in my senior year. And they basically said, you know, three hots and a cot, if you will, and probably travel. There was, you know, money for school, as well as somewhere down the line, you could get a home, or at least, you know, the idea that you could use some sort of VA benefit to get a home. And for me, it was a lot of, I wanted to travel and see the world type of thing. And the Navy recruiter happened to be the first recruiter that I talked to. And my dad had also been in the Navy. So I kind of was familiar already with that. And so for me, it really was about doing something different. And I really just wanted to go do something without being tied down because I had friends that I saw getting into marriages and relationships. And, and I also didn't want to go to more school. Like I'm just finished school. But then again, the military is also school and education, <laughs> just a different environment, if you will, than going off to a dorm room or something like that. So you weren't planning on going to college after you graduated or you didn't really want to go to college? Is that what you're saying? Well, I actually had applied to a couple community colleges and I thought I wanted to be a nurse, but I also like to write. And so I had been looking at like school for journalism, but basically there was no room. There was like a two year waiting list. And I was like, well, I don't want to sit here for two years. I want to still do something. And so I had that college letter saying, come over to community college. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen for me. And so the military was very attractive because I felt very, I guess I'll say judged growing up, given the environment, which was, we lived in the country and we had some hoarding issues. My parents had hoarding issues. And so it was very 
kind of very isolating. And I really felt like if I didn't get out of there, I'd never be judged on my own merits. And so that was part of me wanting to go away and not stay in that town or even stay nearby. Like I really had this drive to to just go fly and be me and not feel like I had this burden of judgment on my shoulders. And now that I'm way older, I realized that was a lot of internal battle, not necessarily external, but it was a very driving factor for me at that time to find some way to escape. And I mean, honestly, and I know there's people that would disagree with this and I get it with our current climate and everything, but for me, the military, I think was the right choice and really opened a lot of doors for me that still allow me to maintain connections to this day. Yeah, I would agree with that statement. So you mentioned journalism. What was your career field when you joined the Navy? (laughs) So this is the part where I can go into choose a school when you have the opportunity. I was more focused on leaving versus where am I going? And so I did ask to be a corpsman. They didn't have room. And instead of exploring other career fields like there's a lot of them. I I just kind of said, well, that's all right. I'm going anyway. And so I went without a school. And it wasn't until about two years ago when my mom reminded me that I had been really interested in journalism. And I'm like, so why didn't I ask about that? Like, why did I not? Why did I just think, oh, this one thing isn't happening. So I'm not going to ask any questions. And so I would say you still retain the power at that point before you enlist, before you sign on anything. And there's no reason why you can't explore what is available. So I highly recommend doing that. I ended up becoming a personnelman. So I did pay documents, ID cards. But before I did that, I was considered an undesignated seaman, which means I got to sweep on the ship and paint and basically do whatever they needed. And in the Navy, they call it striking. So I became a a striker and I studied to become a personnelman. And I had people really rooting for me in that regard. And so I studied like crazy because I was determined that I would make that rate. And I did. And so after I was on a ship, the USS Niagara Falls was a supply ship. And I was there through, we decommissioned that ship. And then I moved to shore duty after that. But my chain of command was very protective of me to make sure I made rate before I talked to a detailer and got new orders to go somewhere. So I'm very grateful that I had people really watching out for me in that piece of the chain of command at that duty station. Yeah, it sounds like your recruiter didn't do a very good job of watching out for you. He tried. In fact, I think he tried to convince me not to go because I had grown up going to church and singing choir. And I I think I was very, appeared to be very soft. And so it was like, why in the world would you go in the military? But I clearly wasn't that soft and (laughs) was able to navigate it. But I think the main thing was I had this idea I won't fail. Like I'm not going to fail. Like I had no, I felt like I had no other choices. And over the years it's become I will succeed, but I I feel like I had a very negative mindset, although it was what pushed me through. Like I have no other options. So, which, you know, was probably not accurate, but in my head that's what I was like, well I hear I'm here 
I committed, I made the decision, I'm going to make this work type of thing. And I can still remember running in Florida in August and you're always pushing. And I, I just remember I ended up being one of the people that would put your towel out and pull the person behind you. Like like there would be a group of us running together. And even though it slowed your time down, there still was some merit for helping the other person keep going. And I feel like that is something I've carried forward. Even now I can see someone struggling and I I don't want to leave them there. And I'm not going to say that's always a positive. If you aren't in a good place yourself, like sometimes you can totally drain your cup trying to help someone else. I developed this attitude that if I could make it through boot camp or basic training, then I could probably do just about anything. So don't get in my way. Yeah. So you feel like your recruiter was a little worried about you, but you were determined to get through it. And then you had that self-confidence because you made it through boot camp and it was challenging. And then you had those, your first command where they took care of you and helped make sure that you got rated so that you could find your next, your shore duty and not still be undesignated. Right. Because you basically, if you go in that way and you go to your next place, like you have to prove yourself all over again, like that you're worthy of, you know, whatever. Like I think it is really comes to a self-worth thing, but it's also a, you have more choices. If you get a little bit of rank, a little bit of rate, you have more choices. And somehow I ended up being junior seller of the quarter twice, at two different commands. And to me, it was like, what? Like I didn't, I never felt like I was doing anything super special, you know, like I'm like, I show up, I have my uniform, I do my stuff, you know, I might volunteer for something here and there, but it just didn't occur to me that I was doing anything special, you know, but I did find myself being in a position of, oh, the duty section is, you know, you're, you're it tonight, you're doing the eight o'clock reports and you're going to talk to the XO today, you little E4. And so, (laughs) I mean, I was found myself in Well, and I think it's true for most in the military, you go in young and maybe not a lot of experience, but all of a sudden you're in a position where you better show up and lead or, you know, no one's going to do it or there is no one else sometimes. And so I feel like leadership is a matter of knowing when to step up, but knowing when to step back. And I think that is something the military develops in people is being able to assess that. And is it, do I need to follow right now? Or do I really need to step into this and, and lead the charge? And I think that that can be a challenge when you leave the military, because that's a, very much a mindset that not everyone embraces or understands. Yeah. And that's really drilled into you as a service member, because sometimes like lives depend on the choices that you make. And so it's not just like, oh, I didn't file that paperwork. It doesn't really matter. Like everything is related to the mission and the mission affects people's lives. And sometimes you can't see the direct impact, but I guess there's just a greater responsibility when you're in the military than in like a civilian job. And it's not, you know, sometimes it really is that life or death situation and other times just really annoying things like you need an ID card to access medical or to go into the commissary or the exchange or get on base and all of a sudden whoops it's expired or someone you issued it with the wrong date or something dumb so it's just very inconvenient sometimes if you make some sort of an error and I mean, now it's simpler to create some of these documents, but I remember typing like in triplicate. If you screwed that up, you couldn't really just 
put some white out on it. You know, you, you had to start over or get a new form issued or whatever. And so now I, I'm hopeful that it's simpler for people to do their jobs with technology. But, and there's other times when you look around and you see something needs to get done and you just kind of do it and you don't necessarily think, oh, this isn't my job. You just think, oh, this needs to get done. And depending on where you work, some people might not appreciate that because they think you're trying to make them look bad. And the truth is, I wasn't even thinking about you. I was thinking about, hey, I saw this thing need to get handled. And so I think there is a difference in that mindset. If you've been in a place where this is maybe a really silly example, but if you open a door, you shut it. Like, you know, it's a watertight door on the ship. You don't just leave that thing hanging open because if something happens, you want the water to not get into that space. So you just can't leave it hanging open and slamming around like you really. And it's something very simple, something very minute, but it's like you opened it, you close it. And but there's a reason for it, too. It's not just some arbitrary thing like, oh, I'm just being lazy today. Like there's a reason why you're taking these actions, even if they're seemingly very small. So you said that you decommissioned the first ship that you were on. Were you guys decommissioning it when you arrived or did you do any tours of, I don't know what the Navy calls it. (laughs) It's a little different. Some people go on very like six or nine months or even a year deployment. Like you're on a ship, you may or may not pull into port. I was actually on that ship for a, a short period of time. If you look at some people's careers, like they're on ships, like, you know, 20 out of 25 years or something. I spent about a year and a half on the ship. And when I got there, they had actually just returned from a deployment to Saudi Arabia, that area over there. And so I did not experience all the joys that they did in Bahrain and some of those areas, but we did travel to Australia. It was like 20 days. I think for me, that was like my longest time. And we did go dead in the water, which means we were out like three days with no engine and you had like shower rotations. So it's the middle of the day and, you know, A through, you know, Q or whatever goes and takes a shower and then the rest take a shower. Like you're on this kind of weird rotation, but you're in very close quarters, you know, on a ship and you need people to be hygienic and all that. But it was one of those times when I was like, if we sink, we're dead. Like we're in the middle of nowhere, you know, and we have no power. And of course, the, everyone's working to get it going again, but it was an older ship. And the interesting part to me is that my dad had a coworker when I was growing up that had been stationed on that ship during Vietnam. And I was like, how out of all the places I could land that I landed on that ship? And I just always thought it was kind of cool that I had been on that ship. But the ship decommissioned and went to a USNS ship instead of a USS ship. And so basically civilians took that over and that ran, they took it over and it was and it existed for quite a few years. And I think it's been about four or five years when I learned that, you know, the ship was used for target practice, basically. But it was very weird because I feel like a lot of my youth was on that ship and I got to travel and see different places like Australia, like Japan, you know, Bali. One of my favorite places to say is Unjung Pangdang in Indonesia. But I mean, they really had the little rickshaw carts, you know, where you'd be, they took you to the hotel, riding one of those things. And I remember going to Thailand and you had Liberty boats. And so the ship is way out there. You take a Liberty boat to a point and then you have to walk the rest of the way in the water up to the shore. And so 
I also became a, a shellback during that time when we went to Australia, which basically means we crossed the equator and we got hosed down with, you know, fire hoses and crawled through trash. I have this picture of me coming out of the trash chute and it's so gross, but it's one of those things too, where you're like, yep, survived that one too. So what else you got? <laughs> you know, in high school, you write some goals, you know, we 10 year olds or whatever. And one of mine was to travel. And I really feel like I accomplished that in spades by going in the military and I always wanted to go see, like wherever I was at. Hey, let's go to Tokyo. Oh, but that's like three hours away. Uh, yeah, on a train. I have my little guidebook. I have to be, it's Friday. I have to be back here by Monday. Like, I'm pretty sure I can figure it out. You know, I'm not going to just sit here and not go explore it because I may not get back here again. But I did manage to go a couple different times anyway. And one of the cool things I got to do was climb Mount Fuji. So that's kind of one of those things where, you know, you're not sure you're going to get there again. But there's also like a a saying that says like, he who climbs once is a fool. He who climbs twice is an even greater fool. So... <laughs> I only claimed the first, but it was, for me, there was a lot of, I mean, there were some difficulties being a woman in the military, but there was a lot of upsides too, where I just, I feel like I had to really develop a very sassy attitude just to navigate sometimes, but I still feel like it was the right choice. Yeah, it seems like you got to do so much. And so I loved hearing all your stories about the different ports that you got to go to and and even how different it is. It's like sometimes the Navy, you go on deployments and you're gone for like six or nine months. And then sometimes you do what these are shorter tours where it's just like 20 days or 10 days or whatever. And so that's really interesting because I don't think I've really heard anyone talk about all the different ways that the Navy keeps you guys trained and ready to go. And that's really true because like I was on a supply ship. So we had connected or con reps and vert reps. We had helicopters that would ferry stuff to other bigger ships. Other times you would um, just shoot, shoot a line and carry it across like on a line, on a rope or a wire rope, carry the things across. But I was also part of the flight deck. So, you know, you would see the the hel helicopters and things coming in and, and you had like a fire team. If there was a fire, you know, they're ready to, to put that down, lay down the foam or whatever type of fire you're dealing with. And I had a lot of opportunities. I shoved a lot of things into a four-year time period, but I always wanted to have, like, I wanted to be the little old lady that had fun stories to share someday. It sounds like you did that. So you were on the ship for about a year and a half, and then you said you transferred to shore duty, which I know means that you're not attached to a ship and you're mm -hmm. um, kind of like a break, but you're still working, just doing a different mission. Where did you go? So the, the ship was home ported in on Guam and I opted to stay overseas. Well, I get it's overseas shore duty, but technically Guam is, you know, part of the U.S. territory anyway. So I went to personnel for detachment there and it was a nice break though, because you went from like duty every third day to twice a month. And most of the time, the weekends you were at the beach or snorkeling or doing something like you, I would say it was an easier pace, but you still had people transferring and just a lot of different pieces of the puzzle. And so we're supporting more commands there than so any surrounding commands. 
we handled their paperwork and transfers and ID and people would come there and you wouldn't have housing right away. So you're always looking at their hotel costs and trying to get those things taken care of because you're not only serving the service member, you're also dealing with their families and their kids. And you're trying to make that transition something easier for them. And it's not always that way because you get there, you bring an animal, they're in quarantine for X amount of days, you don't have your household goods. You know, there's a lot of transition piece. And if you're newly married or new to the military as a spouse, you may not know some of the the things that you should be asking. And so that can be really challenging when you come to a new location and don't know anyone and you maybe don't have a car. So you're trying to hitch a ride or it's difficult to be in the military. And there was always kind of this joke that if you were supposed to have a family, they'd have issued one in your sea bag or a spouse. And I did see that kind of attitude. What like we brought you here. We didn't ask you to bring everybody else. And it's like, well, you know, a lot of people have dependents in the military. Anyway, I I do feel honored that there are times when you step in with emergency orders or someone's family member passed away or something like that. And you're that person that gets called up at midnight on duty to go in there and deal with it. And so I think I feel like I was able to handle some of those things with compassion based on my own experiences, based on my younger brother being in a wheelchair. So I kind of understood that special needs aspect. And so I just feel like I was able to lend some empathy in those situations sometimes that same with going in the military. I believe that God had a purpose for that because now I'm connected with a lot of people because of that service and because of kind of reconnecting to what I call my inner veteran. I never said I wasn't one. I just didn't embrace it that much. Once I separated and once I was married, it was very weird to go from being active duty to a spouse. Let's talk about that transition. So you said you were in for four years, right? Mm -hmm. Then did you get married right before you transitioned or how did that all work? (laughs) I did get married. You know, it was one of those romantic, you know, we met on Guam and I ended up, I did get married right at the end of my service and we lived in California for a while. And then we actually went back to Guam. And so I felt in a way like I was kind of old school because I'd already been there and I already knew the transition and bringing up, I did not bring a pet, but I already knew like you're living in a hotel for two months and you don't have any of your stuff and you're looking at houses. And it was very weird in a way to go back there. But again, I had good experiences there. We lived in our first house was like a duplex. We had a nice view until the termites came. They treated one side of the duplex for termites and not both sides. So they treated the side of my neighbors. And then one day I came in my kitchen and I heard like this munching. And I was like, bet I got termites. I open it up. Yep. They got on the backside of this box, whatever. And they treated that place twice and they still couldn't get rid of them. And so I went one morning very early down to housing and I said, I'd like to move and you've already treated this twice and there has to be some other place for us to live. And the main reason I share that story is because sometimes people don't realize you really have to ask for something. And even if you're feeling less than as a military spouse, it doesn't mean you don't have the right to ask for something. You can be polite and courteous and all that. Don't make it harder for your active duty member, but by all means, 
try to address the issue so that you're not suffering. And so anyhow, I was able to get a, a list. Like I was kind of probably overbearing. So I'm like, I'm not leaving until you tell me what houses I can go look at. But, you know, within a, like two weeks, we were on, we were moving and I couldn't stand the termite thing anymore. And I'm sure for me, some of that was how I grew up without like finished floors and things like that. I don't recall termites, but I was very much freaked out about weird living situations. So anyway, the transition was strange in a way, and it took like a year to get some kind of disability rating. And so this would have been in 1996. So I ended up, I did divorce the person I was married to after 15 years. I refer to it as a necessary divorce. There's all kinds of things that went into why I'd made that decision, but to say it was necessary is true. And you can find life after that. But It took about a year for that disability decision to show up, back pay and all that. And I would say one of the challenges even now is dealing with the VA. It can be very, sometimes I've had great experiences. Other times it's like, oh, women served in the military? Uh, Yeah, for how many hundreds of years? Like a hundred years, probably. You know, it's not like I'm just some, it's not new. And sometimes people act like it's very new, like it's an epiphany that women served in the military. Sometimes I find that very alarming, the level of disbelief and the amount of convincing you have to do if you even mention it. And I just find that to be kind of strange sometimes. And is it at the same VA office? Because I'm guessing you're, or did you move around a lot because of the relationship? So initially I was in California, then I was in Guam and they had VA spaces at both of those. And then I moved and I live in Washington state now. So I was seeing like at the Seattle VA, but they also have community health. If you're considered rural or I think more than 30 miles from a facility, or if they don't have space capacity to take on new patients, then they can assign you to providers in your community, which that has been very helpful to be able to do that. But there is a sometimes a lot of rigmarole as far as getting through on the phone and getting the forms and the paperwork. And so I just recommend we like, don't give up because I've felt that, but you know, you have to be patient. You have to call again. You know, if you're able to get into your online accounts now, which are amazing, like you can get in there and file for a claim. You can see the status, you can upload documents. There's a lot of things that are easier now than when I went through that, having to make sure you have copies of everything and and things like that. So there are improvements that have been made, but there still is a level of frustration, I think, that exists. And I don't see it only with that entity. I see it with other entities as well, where sometimes it's like this barrage of information that is 45 pages and you have to weed through it to figure out what pertains to you. And so I find that If you have any kind of issue, whether it's PTSD or you have any kind of MST or um, anything that makes paperwork difficult, like it's so challenging to, or, or I know people that are blind or, you know, have limited sight. And so it's so frustrating to be trying to navigate that. And so I just feel like there's ways that we could be improving how we are serving our veterans across the board. Yeah, I'm not. In the VA health system, so I don't have a lot. I know a lot of people who choose not to, and I understand that. If you are 10% or more disabled, service-connected, they'll pay for your glasses periodically. 
So you transitioned out of the military and you were a military spouse for a time and then you guys got divorced. And now what are you doing today? Because you said that you got you weren't really that connected to your veteran side. And then now you've gotten more connected into it. So what happened to make that shift happen? So at the time that I filed for divorce, I worked full time for the state and I did financial eligibility for state programs, cash, food and medical. And during that time, I got a lot of training as far as facilitating groups and learning how to help people shift and into thinking more positively about things they could do in their life. And I saw people successfully leave state assistance um, and move on with their lives. And it was like a glorious thing the day where they could say, hey, I finished my degree. I whatever, like my income is too high, like see ya. And so there was something very positive about that. And so for a time, I thought I was going to be a social worker. And so I went back to college and I was working full-time, going to college full-time. And then I started to really look at, do I really want to be here until I'm 65? Like I see things that need to change. I see people trying, but it's really hard. I did some project management as well. And I was always pushing for that next thing, like to do something different. I was invited somehow to a women's veteran conference down in the Seattle area. And so I went to that. It was pretty cool. I was like, wow, I hadn't really remembered the, like I had this whole piece of me, which is really silly because I got my job with the state using veterans preference. I bought my house using, you know, my VA certi- eligibility certificate. Like, how was I missing this whole piece? So they did a fashion show of women's military uniforms over the years. And then they started to talk about, you know, the benefit of having a business and things like that. And so I really started to explore through something called VWISE, uh, Veteran Women Igniting the Spirit of Entrepreneurship. And they had a special program where you could submit a business plan or an idea, basically. And you did this pre-homework. And then I went to a conference in Bellevue, which is a couple hours from me. And that's kind of how the whole thing started was, huh, I see issues with homelessness where I live. Like, why are all these people like... I already knew there was an issue because of my previous work. I'd already been on a board that supported homelessness, you know, a nonprofit. And I was like, I still don't see like that we're solving anything. And so I kind of started in talking about housing issues. And then as we went a little deeper and I got into a mentorship program with someone named Larry Broughton, I saw him speak. I decided I was going to meet him at this event. Little old me, my homemade business card you know, no reason on the planet that he should talk to me right in my head. But I went up to him and talked to him anyway, and ended up being part of his mentorship program that he was offering. And um, that kind of started me on the path of, all right, well, what else do you know about? And so I started to talk about hoarding issues and how I saw that leading to evictions and how difficult that is to grow up in it, how hard it is to have a parent with that issue and how do you navigate all that? And so it kind of became on-site organizing work. And then it now it's become very much virtual and connecting that way because a lot of times people need that support, but you don't necessarily need the physical labor. Some people do. But the other piece that I've learned over the past couple of years is how many people join the military to escape something chaotic. And it doesn't have to be hoarding, but I've discovered a lot of youth like myself who said, I'm getting out of here and whatever it takes, like I'm going. And that was kind of my experience and my attitude. 
And then when I started my podcast, that's some of the people I started interviewing initially was people who had survived that and were willing to talk about it because there's a lot of shame and isolation surrounding that. Even if you didn't create it, like there's this expectation you'll fix it. And that's really hard if there's that emotional connection and baggage and trauma. And it's all like this big ball of yarn that you just, you start unraveling one and it just goes deeper and deeper. But what, what I want people to know is they are not alone in navigating this and that you don't have to carry that sense of shame forward into your life and you can create something different and better. So now, I mean, my focus really is around that issue and helping people navigate it, consulting like, Hey, I have an issue. Let's set something up and talk about what we can do. And sometimes you, the focus is really on the person, you, the person who sees the problem, because a lot of times you're wrapped up in it and, and no one's asking you, how are you, you know, are, are you using protective equipment when you go into these spaces, if they're really bad, um, how's your self-care, you know, wh- where are you going to use the bathroom if the, the plumbing isn't working? Like very fundamental things that you often won't, wouldn't think about if you weren't dealing with something like that. It evolved. Let's put it that way. And if you're in business or if you're an entrepreneur or if you're a creative person, you're always looking for some way, I think, to take what you know and turn it into something impactful. What I see is a lot of people start things and the intent is not money initially. You know, it's very much about the impact. And then one day you realize you need money too. (laughs) So there's some things we could do, I think, to improve people's understanding of the financial piece of starting a business and the fixed costs and even a podcast, like, right. It's not free. I think people don't realize some of the financial costs. I sure didn't. But when I look back like over organic advertising and things over the past three years or so, that's where the impact has been, you know, very organic, slow, but very, when you get that message that says, Hey, something you did or the conversation you all had that helped me in some way, you're just like, Oh yeah, that's right. That's why I did this. That's why I started it for the impact. And now I kind of look at it as, you know, impact, freedom, income, where you, that becomes kind of your driving force. And that's kind of where I'm at now. And I have, you know, plans for others to be able to take some of this information and, and use it because there's like 19 million people, an estimated amount in the USA that have a hoarding issue. And even if that they only impact one other person, that's still a lot of people that are trying to figure out what to do, including firefighters, including adult protective, child protective. Like there's a lot of people that come across these issues and really there isn't a plan and there isn't a way to handle it or not handle it well. And I see part of my role is changing the face of that, changing how we address it so that we mitigate it before it gets to the point that there's rodents or someone falls and like it's impossible for EMS to rescue. Like it can snowball quickly. And I just see that we can address it better. And I never in a million years thought I would talk about any of this publicly, (laughs) but it's kind of, it's not a me thing. You know, it's not about that. I share it. I feel called to have a voice around it, but it's about so many other people. Even today, looking at our culture where everything is so much Zoom and internet and whatever. And if you're a person 
at all living in a space that you don't want to see on camera. You don't want to be seen in that space. Like it is horrifying when you have to run around and figure out how can I hide this? Should I put a towel over it, a sheet? Which closet should I hide in? And it's all things that kids and people are dealing with. Even if you have no hoarding issue at all, it's still one of those shame pieces where you want to present well in your business environment or your school or your class or whatever, even just with friends or hanging out, like you still want to present well. And so I think it's a piece of the puzzle that isn't addressed enough that there is these underlying issues and they're even more to the forefront now because of the amount of time we've spent at home and with our families. And some people can handle a lot of clutter. Other people can't cause a lot of friction in relationships. So I think it's helpful to talk about it. I think it's helpful to recognize that a lot of people struggle with it and you don't have to do it alone by any means. Yeah. So I'll put a link to your podcast, which what's the name of your podcast? So it's the Hoarding Solution Podcast. And your business name is? So I'll just tell you the full name. It's I have Homes Are For Living LLC, but the DBA is the Hoarding Solution. And we'll put links to all that in the show notes so that people can get more information about the work that you're doing. And I have one last question, which is what advice would you give to young women who are considering military service? I would say seriously consider it as an option and look at what is available to you. And as far as a school or an enlistment bonus or options, like make sure you are looking at the whole picture. And if you are feeling overwhelmed, bring someone with you or talk with someone who has experience, who has been through it, or is at least willing to talk to you about their experiences. And you don't necessarily have to take first thing that comes up and also just be prepared to be tough and stand your ground and have boundaries about your physical space, what you will and will not tolerate when you're in the military, you know, really seriously look at what you are trying to do, because there are some great programs out there. It might make sense for you to go to college first and then try to be commissioned. You know, there are options and it can be a great way out If you are looking for a way to be independent and experience life on your somewhat on your own terms. And if if you're coming out of something chaotic, it can be a way to give some structure and order to your life, which can really carry you forward and benefit you in the long run. Yep, that's so true. And I have a girl's guide to the military on my website, which I'll link to in the show notes if you're listening and considering military life and have questions so that can help you. And thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing your experience of serving in the Navy. I'm really glad that we got to connect. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you. listening to this week's episode of women of the military podcast do you love all things women of the military podcast become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review it really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow are you still listening you could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book women of the military on amazon every dollar 
$1,000 helps to continue the work I am doing. Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support. Thank you.